0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
0: Maggie Shipstead's third novel, Great Circle, was one of my favourite reads of 2021, part historical fiction, part contemporary satire. It intertwines the story of a pioneering female aviator with that of the Hollywood actress chosen to play her in a modern-day biopic. The novel's broad canvas stretches across many decades and several continents, and is vibrant with barnstormers, bootleggers, and the bold ambition of both its female protagonists to explore new horizons. Before Maggie Shipstead joins me from her home in Los Angeles, here's a clip of Great Circle, narrated by Cassandra Campbell.
1: I was born to be a wanderer. I was shaped to the earth like a seabird to a wave. Some birds fly until they die. I have made a promise to myself. My last descent won't be the tumbling, helpless kind, but a sharp, genet plunge. A dive with intent, aimed at something deep in the sea. I'm about to depart. I will try to pull the circle up from below, bringing the end to meet the beginning. I wish the line were a smooth meridian, a perfect taut hoop, but our course was distorted by necessity. The indifferent distribution of islands and airfields, the plane's need for fuel. I don't regret anything, but I will if I let myself. I can think only about the plane, the wind and the shore, so far away, where land begins again the weather is improving. We've fixed the leak as best we can. I will go soon. I hate the never-ending day. The sun circles me like a vulture. I want a respite of stars. Circles are wondrous because they are endless. Anything endless is wondrous. But endlessness is torture, too. I knew the horizon could never be caught, but still chased it. What I have done is foolish." I had no choice but to do it. It isn't how I thought it would be, now that the circle is almost closed, the beginning and end held apart by one last fearsome piece of water. I thought I would believe I'd seen the world, but there is too much of the world and too little of life. I thought I would believe I'd completed something, but now I doubt anything can be completed. I thought I would not be afraid, I thought I would become more than I am, but instead I know I am less than I thought. No one should ever read this. My life is my one possession. And yet, and yet, and yet…
0: Maggie Shipstead, welcome to My Life in Books.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: We've just heard a clip from the beginning of Great Circle which is taken from the Lost Logbook of Marion Graves, a pioneering female aviator. Can you introduce her a little bit more to us?
2: Yeah, so Marion Graves is effectively orphaned as a child, along with her twin brother, Jamie, um, in a a maritime disaster, the sinking of an ocean liner that their father is the captain of. Um, And she's raised, they're raised by their sort of dissolute artist uncle uh, in Montana in the 1910s and 20s. And then she sees a a pair of sort of performing pilots, barnstormers um, in 1927, and just has this epiphany that she has to fly. And so her life becomes about finding ways to fly and preserving her freedom to fly. So yeah, she flies in Alaska in the 30s. She flies in the UK during Second World War. And then In 1950, she vanishes while trying to fly around the world north-south over the poles.
0: And we know from the very beginning that she has disappeared. And so Great Circle sets out very much to plot her course from, well, before her birth to after her death and the influence that her story has had on others.
2: Yeah, it's, um, I was interested from the beginning of sort of what does it mean to have disappeared, you know, when when you're sort of presumably dead, but nobody knows for sure. Um, Obviously, Amelia Earhart was a bit of an inspiration for that, because I think in all likelihood, she did crash into the ocean and drown, but it's become this whole, you know, source of mystery and lore of what really happened, um, just because we never had any sort of visual evidence.
0: And in her journal she says, what I have done is foolish, but there is that sense that she has been driven throughout her life to to explore, to try and rise above the very mundane life that she otherwise would have had as a woman in Montana in the 1920s and 30s.
2: Yeah, and part of what I was thinking about sort of all along or, or sort of maybe came to understand as I was writing is, especially in that era, to lead an unorthodox life wasn't just one decision. You know, you don't wake up one day and go, I'm not going to be a wife and mother. I'm going to do something different. And, and for women, the opportunities were so limited that, that finding the means to lead a different sort of life was very difficult. And, and so for Marion, it became having to make that decision over and over and over again at a, at a very real cost. And then, yeah, I think with, these, with people who really have that exploration drive, it, it can be difficult in some ways to, to understand them and, and what motivates them. And so my agent and I, when I was drafting the book after she read the first draft, her big question was like, why? Why would she do this? Why would she do t- undertake this flight? It's so dangerous. It's not really doing anything. And so that was something I had to, had to consider too.
0: You paint a wonderfully vibrant picture of rural Montana in the 1920s and 30s. It's full of barnstormers and bootleggers. And Marion's first escape from the sort of rather humdrum life that she is leading is to work as a bootlegger smuggling booze during Prohibition.
2: Right. Yeah. When she's sort of looking for ways she can fund this, this need she has to fly, you know, again, the, the opportunities are, are limited, but then once you get sort of on the other side of the law, maybe there are a few more opportunities, people willing to overlook the fact that she's a girl. And so she initially is um, driving a, a delivery van for a like a moonshiner, a local baker who also makes liquor. Um, and through that, she comes to the attention of a sort of kingpin bootlegger who has seen the potential for uh, bringing liquor in from Canada by air, which in uh, my research, you know, in Montana, every possible means for bringing in alcohol from Canada was exploited. People brought it in by canoe. They brought it in on foot, by train, by air, by car, of course. So that was just sort of a colorful time in history. And and as, you know, many criminals found opportunities during it, so did uh, Marion as well.
0: And through her activities, she meets Barclay McQueen, who's the kingpin bootlegger in Montana. And he, well, he he falls for her, but also he is unable to see her as anything other than another commodity to be owned.
2: Yeah, he's really captivated by exactly this sort of independent, spirit that she has, and he doesn't understand that by getting what he wants from her, which is, you know, essentially to marry her, he will sort of be crushing that spirit. And so Marion sort of has entered into this, this devil's bargain with him. And um, I was doing a book event, and someone was like, well, why couldn't they just have worked it out, (laughs) which ignores, you know, some of the darker parts of the story. Um, But I think, you know, there are two people with just incompatible goals whose destinies are intertwined and in some ways just what they want from each other um, those two things are going to cause their relationship to be destroyed no matter
0: what there's a wonderful line in the book marriage is defeat dressed up as victory and barclay mcqueen wants to marry her and, and ensnare her in his life and the the counterpoint to this is the freedom she finds flying over the mountains and to Canada, which is painted as a wonderfully open and multicultural society in comparison to 1920s and 30s America.
2: I think probably any city would have felt that way in comparison to Missoula at the time. Although it was an interesting era in Missoula as well, because there are lots of, um, you know, railway workers had settled there. And, and so it was less and there was still, um, you know, Native American presence there more than there is now. And um, uh, but then, yeah, Vancouver or Seattle is kind of the other city featured in the book would have just been exponentially different.
0: The book ranges far and wide as Marion pursues her dream of flying away from the very claustrophobic atmosphere of life at home with her dissolute uncle and men who either want to possess her or tie her down. And that sense that adversity creates opportunity is rekindled again during the Second World War when Marion joins the Air Transport Auxiliary.
2: Yeah, it, I'm, the World War II, I think, for a lot of people, you know, in spite of the ongoing horror of it and the sort of unprecedented catastrophe of it, you know, of course, created opportunities. And for a group of female pilots, um, both in the UK and the US... Uh, it was the opportunity to fly wide a wider variety of planes and be of use and be of service and, in a way that took advantage of their actual skills. You know, taking someone who's an experienced pilot and saying, you know, why don't you type up these memos in the airplane factory? Um, it's probably not going to be really satisfying. Whereas what Marion did in the, the ATA was transport warplanes between um, factories and airfields or airfields and repair depots. Um it was a largely, uh, most of the people in the ATA were, were British, but um, I think 20-something American women came over. Um, it was also a co-ed uh, organization, whereas later in the U.S., there were some all-female pilot groups. But um, yeah, I think it was in a time when they could sort of feel like their their skills were being valued and, and put to use, and they were really a part of something. So. Um, I had the opportunity to read through the papers of um, some of the American women who went over and their letters home. And and you can tell it was just a, you know, a new layer of dignity and of uh, value and of self-confidence came out of this experience.
0: And you introduce us to the real life character of Jacqueline Cochran, who set up the American version of the ATA.
2: Yes. So she had the idea early on, before the U.S. had entered the war, that women pilots could be useful. And she herself was a was a, a pilot, um, a very gifted one. And she'd already racked up all these air trophies and was quite famous for her flying. And so she approached President Roosevelt, and, who she knew, I think, socially, and said, you know, we should start preparing for this. That so when we enter the war, we can use women for for these sort of you know at home transportation tasks and free up more pilots for combat. And he said, oh, you know, we don't really need to do that yet, but why don't you ask um, the British if if they want your pilots? And this is 1940, and they definitely did. Um, And then later, after that had been established, she, uh, in conjunction with another woman in the U.S., sort of established um, a similar group in Texas. But the conditions there were, were really difficult, and so some women came back from the U.K., and flew in Texas, and I think um, generally regretted that. One of their tasks was towing targets for artillery practice. So they'd fly <laughs> with a target, you know, behind the plane and get shot at. And there were a couple really horrible accidents. So um, yeah, it was very real the danger they were in. And in, in the ATA, the death rate among those pilots was equivalent to the RAF. So it was very serious business.
0: Your research really shines through in these sections and you chart the successes and sometimes deaths of other pioneering female aviators such as Amy Johnson and Amelia Earhart and I believe that Marion herself was inspired by you seeing a statue at an airport. (laughs)
2: Yes. So I was traveling in New Zealand by myself in 2013. And my first book had come out maybe six months before. And my second book was was pretty much done. Um, It came out in 2014. And I had started something else. And I thought I would work on it while I was traveling. And then for some reason, it just kind of died on me. I think I made the mistake of trying to plot it out in advance, which I've learned I can't do. I have to just really start without a plan. Um, And so I was at the airport to go home in Auckland, feeling sort of sorry for myself. And then there's a statue there of Jean Batten, who is the first person to fly, first person of any gender from London to Auckland solo, um, which she did in 1934. And it's a really beautiful statue. She's sort of up on the balls of her feet and she's wearing this very cool long coat and she has a bouquet of flowers in one arm and she has her other hand sort of held aloft like she's waving and um, it just really caught my eye, and then there was a plaque at the base of it that uh, gave her name and, and then had a quote from her memoir, which says, I was destined to be a wanderer. And that really just struck me, and I thought, oh, I should write a book about an aviator. And I sort of had no complexity of thought beyond that. That was all I thought, um, a female aviator. And then I that line of hers stuck in my head, and so the first line of Great Circle is, I was born to be a wanderer. But, um, yeah, it's pretty unusual when you have sort of a clear origin moment for a book. Usually it's kind of, you know, months of amorphous thought.
0: Now, you're also a travel writer. And I know at the party for this year's Booker Prize, for which Great Circle was shortlisted, you said that in the writing of Great Circle, travel writing and fiction came together beautifully symbiotically. Um, Clearly, you've incorporated a lot of your travels into this book. Did it allow you to go to places that you would not otherwise have visited?
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been a traveller, I suppose, for a long time. Um, like, after I finished university, I a friend and I had round-the-world plane tickets, um, and so we did some, you know, moderately adventurous travel, and, and there'd been other things I'd done, but... Um, I started writing Great Circle in 2014, and then in 2015, fairly randomly, I got offered two writing assignments from two different travel magazines, um, from Travel and Leisure and Condé Nast Traveler. And Travel and Leisure was a travel feature in Hawaii about Oahu, and Condé Nast Traveler was a profile of a ballet dancer, and I said, sure, you know, love to do it. And then when I was done, I asked if I could pitch travel stories. And so the first assignment I got from Condé Nast, I had pitched them a few ideas and um, they sent me to the New Zealand sub-Antarctic islands, um, which for those who have finished the book, uh, that figures into the book a little bit. And it was a really, you know, it's an area of really rough seas, like 30 foot swells. Um, These islands are sort of, you know, rugged, but populated with all these penguins and seabirds and seals and it's just a really wild um amazing place and and going there really changed my life and once i started being able to pitch to magazines i would i would pitch places i wanted to go for the book because i had Marion's. one of the few things i started with when i started writing was her her route around the world i knew which way she would fly because there weren't very many options um just geographically and also given the era. And so I really wanted to get to Antarctica. I really wanted to get to the Arctic. I hadn't been to any of these sort of polar places. And so gradually kind of through just uh, persistence and just twisting people's arms. And then uh, later, later through uh, having made this kind of area of expertise, I've, I think now I've been to the Arctic five or six times, I've been to Antarctica twice. And this was of course, incredibly helpful for the book. And then there would also be other places I happened to go that I would then sort of put in the book. Like uh, I was coming, I think a different trip in New Zealand, I was coming back and you can do a layover for free in the Cook Islands. And so I thought, okay, sure, you know, and then that also, you know, went into the book Um, that happened a lot. So it really changed my life. I mean, by 2019, before the pandemic sort of shut everything down. In 2019, I was out of the country for over 100 days, um, mostly on assignment. So it became a, a really big part of my life and I, th- I think really enriched the book. Although I would also never say that authors have to go everywhere in their book because it's just not you know, viable for people with um, children or with full-time jobs and this sort of thing. So I felt very lucky.
0: And did you learn to fly?
2: No, I didn't. Um, I thought about it. When I started writing, I thought, Um, You know, should I just take a couple lessons so I have a sense of it? And ultimately, I decided I really didn't want to, which seemed like a compelling reason. Like everyone I've talked to who's a pilot, my brother was a pilot in the Air Force for many years, um, you know, and and seeing him as a child, he was almost like Marion. He had to fly. He was obsessed with airplanes. And I sort of thought... You know, if the people that fly really want to fly, it's probably a bad sign that I don't want to fly. Um, I don't have great spatial relations, and it is so three-dimensional, and a lot of it's counterintuitive. Um, I was at the controls of a glider, and I went on all these. If I could go in an airplane for a ride, I would. And so I did fly in kind of a range of, of airplanes, and in all my travel writing, sometimes it's the only way to get somewhere is in, you know, a helicopter or a weird airplane on skis or something like that. Um, But I I made a turn in a glider and I really didn't like it. I felt like it was really precarious and strange. Um, So yeah, I decided it wasn't for me and I had to just do a lot of reading and uh, listen to other people to write the, the flying sequences in the book.
0: So far, we've discussed the fictional character that you've created to inhabit real-world events. Now, let's turn to how she's to be portrayed in a Hollywood biopic by actress Hadley Baxter. Hadley is is wonderfully brash and self-absorbed and has echoes of Hollywood stars who we might know from films like Twilight.
2: (laughs) Indeed. Uh, yeah, Kristen Stewart was really somebody I thought about, especially early on when I was was writing this character. Yeah, Hadley wasn't part of my sort of initial vision for the book, which, as I've said, was extremely rudimentary. Um, and I think i had been working for about a month, maybe six weeks, and I'd started at the beginning before Marion's even born, so it's this ship launch in Glasgow, and then one day I sat down at my desk and I wrote a first-person section where this movie star is leaving a nightclub and very publicly cheating on her movie star co-star boyfriend and it had no sort of obvious connection to this other thing I was writing with the pilot and the ocean liner. Um, but I just really felt like it was the missing piece somehow and it felt like such a relief to be able to write a little bit more fluently in this this first person modern voice as opposed to having to stop and, and look things up every two sentences which I had to do in some parts of Marion's sections. And so I sort of thought, you know, how do I connect this voice that I like working in and that I think would create a nice tonal variety and give the book a different sort of complexity. And so I hit on the idea that Hadley would be playing Marion in a movie about her life. And then as I worked on it over time, you know, it came to mean something else to me. I, I think it became this lens on on storytelling and Hadley understands that she's trying to make sense of Marion's life and to turn it into a commercial product that's a a fairly neat narrative using very scattered clues. And the reader can see, the reader has a really intimate look at Marion's life. And so they can see how far off what the information that Hadley has, you know, is from the reality of Marion's life. And And Marion had left behind a logbook in Antarctica before she disappeared. And so that logbook was published as a book. And then that book inspired a sort of bad novel. And then this movie is based on the kind of bad novel. And so it's this game of telephone. And so for me, this became a a way to get at just how much is lost when someone dies. You know, we take our entire inner life with us. And just about the effort of, of telling a story and how so much of that ends up being about the person doing the telling as opposed to the person who's been, you know, the subject of the story.
0: And there are parallels between Hadley's life and Marion's life. They're both effectively orphans from a very early age. And actually, Hadley has read that biography and logbook of Marion's when she was a child and found great solace in it.
2: Yeah, Hadley. This came in sort of later in my drafting. Um, When I was writing, I really wrote pretty much straight through Marion's life. And what was in the first draft is more or less what's in the published book, although it got you know, massage, and it definitely got trimmed down. And I had to sort of rearrange a couple of plot points. But Hadley's was by far the more sort of dynamic part of the book as I was revising. And this was one thing I did a couple drafts in was, was sort of line up their biographies a little bit. Uh, yeah, as you said, they're both raised by their uncles. And Hadley had been sort of dropped off at the library by her uncle's girlfriend as a child and stumbled upon Marian's book. And so to her, she's... You know, Hadley is not a bad person, but she's definitely a self-absorbed person and someone who thinks the universe is sending her messages. So in order to sort of, you know, feasibly pique Hadley's interest in this long ago pilot, I, I had to give her things that she would look at and think, you know, maybe there's something in this for me. Like maybe, you know, she looks at Marian's life almost like it's tarot cards or astrology or something. Like there's a message in there for her, which there sort of might or might not be.
0: And they are both manipulated by wealthy men as well, which shows that in a 100 years, things haven't really changed that much for women in as much as men have expectations of what they should and shouldn't be allowed to do, even if men don't behave in the same way.
2: (laughs) It's tricky. I mean, of course, Hadley being a wildly wealthy movie star in her 20s in i think i set her sections in 2014 Yeah, you know, she has so many more material opportunities and just simple basic things like being able to have her own finances and own property and um you know as opposed to even when marion was born i believe vote so you know there's that but then she's also has this sort of different pressure on her that is connected to her gender which is that as this very famous person she just says no prayer of ever performing womanhood in a way that's going to please everybody you know she's too sexy or she's too chaste or she's too tied down in a relationship or she's too available and and as you said she's sort of in this industry where i think you know people's the stakes are quite high and a lot of people want to be actors and, and it's puts people in an exploitable position, which which Hadley has certainly been in, especially because, you know, she had this unstable, fairly unstable childhood, uh, kind of with her uncle as her only authority figure. And he was also in Hollywood and doesn't know what to do with her. So he just sort of got her in commercials and in the, like a Disney Channel type show as a young person so she spent her whole life in this world that's you know fundamentally about illusion and that does potentially can do some some strange things to someone's psyche
0: and there's the sense that in hollywood the perspective is warped there's a a great line that hadley and her ex-boyfriend and ex-co-star in the Archangel series use with each other. It's something their fans say, "I live you a- as if their fans are living their lives through this fictional universe that's being projected onto the screen in front of them.
2: yeah, that was one thing I thought was very interesting and in, uh, about Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson in particular was you know, when they were a couple while the Twilight films were being made, i it seemed to me like people were focusing some of the sort of ardor and intense emotions they felt about the fictional characters onto these real life people. And I just thought, you know, that must be an almost unbearable burden. Just that expectation that you somehow live out this love story that is sort of inherently, you know, preposterous, really like (laughs) no shade on Twilight. I actually read Twilight when I was on that trip in New Zealand, my cousin gave it to me and I was I was like, oh, I'm never going to read this. And then I just, you know, gobbled it down. Um, but um, yeah, I think that crossover between life and and f- the kind of fiction that people feel really deep uh, investment and in are almost obsession in can be sort of startling and scary for the, the people who live it. Um, and it's a sort of confusion that that was... Yeah, I think it's kind of a rich topic and was part of what I was interested in in writing about this character.
0: And there's a real sense that Hadley is looking for a sense of perspective through Marion's story and you counterpoint that with the way that she and the film's financier, Redwood, try and look down on Hollywood from the lofty places where they live and yet their their perspective is warped partly because they're part of Hollywood and partly because they're so addled by the drink and drugs and distractions that Hollywood provides that they will never be able to gain a sense of perspective.
2: Right. And I think, you know, for Hadley, I think for a lot of actresses this is true too, is it's hard for her to know, you know, if people really are interested in her, who she actually is, or drawn to her as a person, or if it's just the sort of aura of fame, of wanting to be seen with her, of wanting to have sort of, to be perceived as having, um, you know, conquered her in a way. and And I think that makes it extremely difficult to trust people to trust her own emotions I think she's aware of herself doing that also but then there's also tremendous opportunity for sort of romantic entanglements when you're I think she's 23 or 24 something like that maybe a little older and and extremely beautiful and famous and and encountering all these people who are are sort of desirous of her for various reasons um I think it's a really confusing way to live and and she's sort of grappling with these really big questions of like, how do I live my life? And I think what her sort of central question that she might not have fully articulated to herself is, is this how I want to live my life? You know, do I want to keep doing this with the awareness that for most actresses, you know, there's a shelf life. And I I think that a career sort of waning and fizzling is extremely painful for a lot of people and, and not everyone kind of finds that transition into a more sort of civilian life. You know, not everyone's Meryl Streep and gets to keep acting in other, you know, 60s and 70s, and um, not everyone kind of is grounded enough to just go buy a goat farm or whatever. So um, I think she's also, that's in the back of her mind, this awareness of, of will I need to find something else to do and, and what could that possibly be?
0: We've concentrated on the weightier aspects of Hadley's Section in the book, but it's also very funny. There's this fantastic satirical observation of Hollywood, and I know you work in LA yourself. How's it gone down with your friends who work in the movie industry?
2: Um, very well. I think people like to feel seen, even if you're, you know, writing something that's critical. If it's true or true enough and resonates, then I think people sort of enjoy it. I had that experience with my first book, which was very critical of kind of waspy East Coast culture, but people really liked it (laughs) for some reason too, even though it was sort of insulting. Um, Yeah, everyone, I mean, in Hollywood, of course, you know, it's full of people who just go to work every day. Nothing crazy happens. They type away on their computer. They have their colleagues uh, you know, just sort of mundane workaday stuff. And then it's also full of all this crazy behavior. So, I mean, I think uh, most people who work in Hollywood also appreciate a good narrative and <laughs> a little bit of style. So, I would say it's been um, positively received. And it was interesting when um, uh, it's been optioned for a, a limited series for TV, which does that mean it will be a limited series? I don't know but (laughs) a production company optioned it and so in our our conversations with producers it was also sort of gratifying um a couple of them had worked on these big teen movies like I the the guy who optioned it had worked on Twilight and I talked to somebody who'd worked on the Hunger Games and and it's it felt um it felt right to them so that was really nice to hear and it was also fun for me just to talk about Hollywood because um yeah I don't work in it directly, but many of my friends do, most of my friends do. Um, and so it is kind of, LA as a one industry town and this way everyone's always talking about um, film and TV.
0: Maggie, in your Booker speech, you said that this was primarily a book about scale. Can you expand on that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, one thing I was thinking of from the beginning with this book was this question of how do you sort of assess your place in the world in terms of the sort of immensity that we're surrounded by. And, and, you know, this idea that a human life is really, really tiny and really, really brief, but also really, really huge and really, really long. And how do you measure your life against the scale of the planet? And how do you measure your life against all the other lives being led? And and not that it's necessary to do these particular measurements, but, you know, if, if you're somebody who's kind of captivated by these questions you know how do you express that and, and for me and she kind of she wants to sort of get a handle on on this planet <laughs> we're living in and in 1950 when she sets out to do her flight part of the reason I, I chose to have her do a, a circle around the world over the north and south poles was that it hadn't been done I don't think it was done until the 60s at some point And in 1950, it would have been mm, not impossible, but really unlikely. And the big problem was Antarctica, because you would have to fly from South Africa to New Zealand, you would need to refuel twice in Antarctica. And at that point, there were no permanent bases. So I had to sort of come up with a solution. Um, But, you know, one of my questions for Marion was, you know, she doesn't finish the circle, but if she had what would that even mean to her? You know, she would have gone to all this work in order to deliver herself back to where she started. And would she have gotten from that what she wanted? You know, can you have a sense of of the planet? And I mean, I've traveled quite a lot and I think you can, but it's always piecemeal, you know. And in Marion's flight too, she acknowledges that she's only seeing, you know, one tiny tract of, of the planet as she makes this flight all the way around it. You're still, you can't sort of carpet the whole thing. And it's so impossible to, in some ways, internalize the scale just of our planet, which of course is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the universe. And that sense of awe and of something just being sort of beyond your grasp um, was a feeling I I was really interested in in pursuing and and trying to bring into the book and the sort of impossibility of, of really understanding it.
0: There's a line in the book where you say that art is distortion like a lens through which to focus on the enormity of reality and and that's very much what drives Marion's twin brother Jamie in his pursuit of painting. He is trying to create a, a sense of perspective which encompasses everything that he can see around him into a canvas which is necessarily flat and and held within a frame
2: you know he's sort of trying in his artwork to put as much of the world onto one one canvas and so he's trying to come up with these sort of techniques to sort of compress his literal vision of the world into this canvas which became sort of a metaphor of course for what I was trying to do in the book you know how do you fold the world into this one piece of art. And, and part of it's about acknowledging the impossibility of that. And the other is sort of, you know, artifice and, and technique. And it's um, sort of the second time I've written about art in a way that a different art form while I'm still sort of mm-hmm. writing about writing. like My second book was about ballet. And, and a lot of that was about the pursuit of an impossibility of perfection. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> nothing no art is ever perfect but, but you're always hoping every time you start that this will be the perfect thing. Um, and so yeah with Jimmy's Jamie, art, I was sort of in some ways purposely drawing attention to what I was trying to do and there are these sections in the book the incomplete histories which will sort of run through a lot of time like the one about Missoula starts during the ice age and then runs forward and so I was trying to use those to sort of gesture at the hugeness that's surrounding this book and really locate the book in a larger reality I think you know in the edits for this book especially because the initial draft was extremely long it was like another twenty-five percent. This book this book's already quite long. It was nine hundred and eighty manuscript pages originally. I cut more than two hundred of those. Yeah, so in in these conversations around editing this book down from its initial nine hundred and eighty pages to its slender seven hundred and fifty manuscript pages and six hundred bound pages, my editor floated, Well could we cut Hadley? You know, or could we cut these incomplete histories and just make it this really straightforward kind of, as I say, like loaf of historical fiction. And I was always really opposed to that because I just wanted that complexity. It seemed like that I don't think a lot about theme while I'm writing, but in editing, you do think about theme a bit. And I felt like the theme of the book was being reflected in the structure of the book. And I really wanted to keep that structure.
0: And it also reinforces the point that we are the product of our past And what we do during our life can also shape the future, which I suppose is why you go back to years before Marion's conception. We have to understand the history of her mother to understand why Marion becomes effectively an orphan.
2: Yes, I think that's right. Um, That part of the book was also, you know, periodically on the chopping block and did get condensed. And I think it is still a slow burn getting into the book. And I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but it has, you know, narrative omniscience, not in sort of the Jane Austen sense of a a narrator that's commenting on the um, action, but in terms of being able to access the world, like around the characters. And I think there is a line somewhere in the book, I think it's the director of Hadley's movie is talking about how you know, in some ways, life is sort of this chain reaction, like everything that happens mm. to you sort of is, you know, pushing your the course of the next thing that happens to you in a new direction. And there's infinite possibilities for the way each of our lives could go, um, which... I mean, I don't think everyone sees it that way, but there is sort of an alarming randomness to it sometimes.
0: Now, the book has been brought fantastically to life as an audiobook by two wonderful narrators, Cassandra Campbell, who reads Marion Graves' part, and Alex McKenna, who has a lovely, vibrant 21st century Hadley voice. Did you have anything to do with their selection as narrators?
2: I did, yeah. It's a really interesting process. I haven't listened to the whole audiobook, um, partly because I had to read the books in my time, so I was deeply sick of it. And also because my publisher never sent me like a link or a file, so I haven't bought it. Um, but um, yeah, so the, the producer of the audiobook gets in touch, and then we started talking about sort of the vocal qualities, I thought were important for each of the characters. And, and so she sent some ideas of, of narrators or actresses she really likes and has worked with. And this one I was kind of like, for Marion in particular, was challenging to cast. And I was sort of like, no, no, no. And I said, you know, she should sound sort of Knowing, and then she sent a couple actresses who sounded sort of like brassy and sassy, and I was like, No, 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 not like that. <laughs> you know? um, and then uh, I think Alex was fairly easy to cast. I, I really liked the samples of her, I thought she sounded just right. And you also wanted to create contrast between them, so I think there were some possible narratives for Marion that I liked, but the producer pointed out that they sounded too much like Alex. And, so, yeah, and then you just cross your fingers that they're available and and I'm so happy they were
0: and you really gave them a workout. They have to travel through oh. especially Cassandra has to travel across so many continents and master so many accents.
2: They're amazing, um, yeah, I felt this way about the audiobook for Astonish Me in my second book too the The actress, I think got in touch or the director at some point and was like so you know, this person has an accent at this point, and then over time does their accent become less pronounced? And I sort of thought, you know, you can not only do an accent, but you can modulate it, like you can have less or more of the accent. So, yeah, I think they're, they're absolutely amazing.
0: So you've investigated ballet in Astonish Me and pioneering flight in Great Circle. Where to next?
2: Well, I have a collection of short stories coming out, I thought, in June, but maybe May. (laughs) Some emails this morning. I'm now confused about when it's coming out. Um, And those are sort of all over the place, really wide-ranging. And I wrote them between 2008 and 2017. And then I would really like to be at work on a novel right now. I had started something that I think I will use and go forward with, but I I really was having a strong instinct that something was wrong. And so I've paused. Um, And I think some of it was just in some ways dealing with, you know, I've been promoting this book pretty heavily for almost eight months and it's taxing in a, in a way and there are things you sort of start to understand how people perceive your work. And that's very distracting when you're trying <laughs> to create new work. Um, kind of there's an impulse to, to correct things. And, you know, it's the dumbest idea in the world to sort of be like, well, what would win the Booker Prize? <laughs> you know, that doesn't work. That's a bad way to write a book. But it's, I'm kind of in the process of tuning all that stuff out. I think before I go back to it, I'm trying to find a little more clarity but um i'm i think it'll be kind of a a more granular family story i do not plan to include a historical element give myself a break from the research um and possibly about sort of maybe a business fraud i'm not sure
0: maggie so far we've talked about your books now it's your opportunity to tell us about some of the books that have inspired you in your life with the books of your life I should imagine that you are an avid reader.
2: Yes, um, although I, this year has not been a great reading year, I always keep a list on my phone. 2020, I read you know sixty something books, which probably isn't that many for someone in the books industry, and then this year I'm lagging far behind. so yeah, I feel a little ashamed.
0: <laughs> so what was the book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
2: So I remember when I was maybe six, um, and so just starting to read for myself, my mom read aloud to me a children's novel called All of a Kind Family. It was published in 1951, and I think we have the original edition. It had sort of a canvas cover. I think it had belonged to my mom's mother and my mom as a child, and it's set in 19. 12 in New York on the Lower East Side, and it's about a family, a Jewish family with five little daughters. And it's based on the author's childhood, I think, Sydney Taylor. Um, And it's just really an incredibly charming book. It has sort of these vignettes, you know, about the girls choosing candy at this little candy shop and eating it in bed and the crumbs, you know, left behind and about all the different Jewish holidays. And and so for me as a really young child is really one of my first experiences of how a book could transport me into a totally different life, you know, different era, different place. And I I was so fascinated by these other little girls who didn't really exist. Um, And I think that was one of the first books I then was really determined to read for myself and not have it read to me because I just wanted to spend more time inside it. And yeah, from from that age on, I, I really was a voracious reader as a child and read in a way that I wish I could still read now, you know, with very little judgment. <laughs> um, and just sort of whatever came to hand, I'd, I'd happily read.
0: And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread?
2: I've been thinking a lot about Ruth Ozeki's novel, A Tale for the Time Being, which I read some years ago and I loved. And for the booker, they had asked us to write a little something about another book that had been shortlisted or won in the past. And and this was what I chose. And I was like, oh, I'll just refresh my memory and, you know, page through it a little bit. And of course, as soon as I opened it, I was completely sucked in. And I wished I'd had a full rainy day just to reread the whole thing. Um, And it's a dual narrative. This woman who's named Ruth, like the author, who's a writer in the Pacific Northwest, finds a sort of Ziploc freezer bag on the beach and it has the diary of a Japanese teenager in it and also a watch that belonged to a kamikaze pilot and some letters and there's sort of these elements of magical realism to it and and the the narrative then alternates also with that girl's diary entries and then with other things as well so it's a multifaceted narrative I I found it really thrilling it sort of introduces ideas of sort of you know, the multiverse and different possible destinies, but I, I thought it was handled so beautifully. And like I said, as soon as I opened it, I was completely sucked back in.
0: And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners?
2: Um, yes, I mean two if I might. I just read Tribundu Onuzo's new book called Sankofa, Um, and she and I had been finalists for the Dylan Thomas Prize together in twenty twelve. And so we spent a week in a Welsh farmhouse. Um, and she was really, really young. She was in her early twenties then. And this book is about a mixed race English woman who discovers after her mother dies that her father was the, the leader, maybe kind of dictator of a small African country, and she goes to that country to meet him and I I loved it. I read it in just a couple sittings. Um, And then I also just read Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. I've never liked Jonathan Franzen. I I did not like the corrections. I don't like his essays. I've had such a, you know reaction to him and then I thought this book was amazing um just the depth of thought the degree of empathy to which he gets in his characters just the incredible realization of other lives I was just you know really awestruck by it and have to tip my hat to Jonathan Franzen after all this time
0: well Maggie Shipstead thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with me and the listeners today and I'll look forward to welcoming you back onto the show in years to come i love that red. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest Maggie Shipstead and the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how.
1: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time.